This is Guideposts with Dr. Tim Stoffer, a podcast where Tim and his friends engage in purposeful conversation about identity, parenting, culture, faith, and more. Tim Stoffer is a professor of counseling and a licensed clinical counselor. My name is Sam Myung, and I'm Tim's friend. My life has been greatly enriched by my time talking to Tim and getting his thoughts on many matters that impact my life daily. After listening to this podcast, I hope you'll feel the same. Guideposts are discernment markers. They provide opportunities for direction as well as warnings of pitfalls. Go this way and be careful of that way. We hope that each episode provides some sense of direction as we navigate the challenges of daily life. Thanks so much for listening. Quick disclaimer, the content of this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your licensed mental health provider. Tim, good morning. Hey, good morning, Sam. Good to spend this time with you. Looking forward to our conversation today. And um, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about and set up the um, set up yeah. the conversation for us. Tim, um, I'm hoping that you will tell me who am I? Uh, who like uh, we're going to talk about identity? Um, how is that formed? Um, but really it's the question of who am I? Like how, how do I view myself and how does that come about? So that's, that's kind of what I was hoping we could talk about today. Sure. Um, I don't know we're in the middle of the winter Olympics. And so I anticipate that you may, uh, have been watching some, but we, we saw one of the skiers, uh, what was her name? Michaela. Michaela Schifrin. Yeah. Uh, things didn't go for her as she had hoped. We saw that in the summer Olympics with Simone, um, what was her last name? Biles, Biles, I believe. Um, like we see these, we see these two women who were at the top of their game. Like the expectations were, were so high for them. Uh, but they were really, really disappointed, uh, at this pinnacle of their career, this highlight of this is a time, um, to take it all and win the whole thing. Um, and it didn't work out and it really challenges the the way a person thinks about their life and career um so you i think you have that quote from michaela yeah so, <clears throat> tell so, our audience what she said and yeah. then let's let's dig mm-hmm, into it mm-hmm. yeah so for those who who are unfamiliar with who michaela Schiffer is she was like the the u.s um women's skier who was anticipated to take multiple gold um at the the these winter olympics um in beijing but uh she her in her first event did not finish and so didn't even didn't even get to finish well it happened in her second race as well and um after the second race the guys interviewing her and and i mean it's absolutely heartbreaking uh but he asks her like what is she still processing and her response is uh, everything. Like I am second guessing the last fifteen years. Like in a split second, in a moment, she is now questioning everything she knows. Like about the last fifteen years, and I feel like is really telling. Of you know, I feel like that's connected to identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like uh, you know who we are is so uniquely attached to what we do and what we achieve. And we see this example right here where she didn't achieve what she had hoped for. 
is now all of a sudden she's just like questioning everything she knows about who she is and what that means. And so I feel like is is kind of a pretty powerful example for what we're going to start talking about. Right. Right. And I just, as I, as I listened to her response to the interviewer and the question that she was asked about that, and she says, I'm questioning everything like the past 15 years, it, as a clinician, as a, as a therapist, I'm sitting here thinking like, what would I say to her Mm -hmm. if she walked into my office and and sat down and said, I want to talk this out. I want to, I want to process it. And, and so I think like in the moment, like immediately following the kind of disappointment, it's important to just validate this investment in our work. Uh, it's, it's important for us to be able to see that as part of an expression of who we are. Like there's nothing wrong with this sense that I find satisfaction from the quality of my work. In fact, a, a, a solid and good work ethic, um, like it necessitates this sense that I want to, I want to be a success. I want to achieve. I want to create something of value. And so, to not have any sense that my identity is at all connected to what I'm doing or what I, what I um, achieve, would be that would be a. That would be skewed too far on the sure. line. We should have some sense. And so so what becomes problematic is if in a year or in months from now, uh, she's seeing her life as an abysmal failure because she didn't win the gold and because she had um, she slipped and things didn't go well and she sees herself as an abysmal failure. Sure. That would be catastrophic. And I would hope that she would um, get help talking that out and and re-narrating those stories because while it's appropriate to express that in the moment, um, if it persists in this sense that I wasted the past 15 years of my life, that would be a really sad capstone, um, description. But for many of us, that's, we've had events in our lives where we have allowed them to kind of, um, form up a sense of how we understand who we are. And, and all of us are grappling with this question of, of who am I? And when I think about it from a, from a Christian, um, perspective, and I think about the creation story, we see God creating, um, in the first um, books of Genesis. And every time he creates, he has this, he has this expression that at the end of the day, he reflects back on the quality of his work and affirms it as being good. And we see this day after day in the creation mm-hmm. story, um, ultimately culminating um, in the creation of human beings and declares, and it's very good. And, and it's at the end of this process of creation that God affirms the quality of his own work. And as he does so, he is able to rest. And he's able to bring his work to a close and with a great sense of satisfaction, being able to say what I did stands, the quality stands up to the test of time. It's like what I've done here is good. And now I'm able to rest. We're not able to do that. Right. And so we can't affirm the quality of our own work. Right. We're always constantly 
come into other people. Did I do good? Is this good enough? Do you, do you like this? Right. Yeah. Right. If you, I mean, you think about your, my children are older than your children, but when I reflect back, like, isn't that what happens when our children bring us a, a, a pay a coloring page yeah. with scribbles all over it? And the, it's like, it's chaos on top of a, a, on top of a picture. And, and our toddler comes up with great pride, daddy, yeah. Do you like this? Is this good? And we say, wonderful job. And we paste that <laughs> sucker up on the refrigerator and we hang it there with pride. And we're, we're communicating to our children, you are an acceptable person to me. You, sure. What you do is a reflection of who you are. And I affirm it. And so when, when we find that the quality of our work suffers, we will always be questioning whether or not we will be affirmed in the quality of our work. And the older we get, the more sophisticated that process becomes and the more nuanced it becomes. And depending on the circumstances and the events of our lives, we can begin to develop uh, what might be called a problem-saturated story or narrative. It's like we narrate the stories through a lens of of this negativity and this sense of inadequacy. Uh, and Alice Morgan, when she talks about narrative therapy, uh, she talks about narratives or stories are like a thread that weaves the events of together. And, it, and these events through life form a story. And what happens for a lot of people is we focus on the painful and negative stories and we weave all of those together and we eliminate or prune out positive stories that actually tell a different, that have a different, would have a different outcome or would bring some balance. So it's. So say that again. So you're saying like uh, a, a negative narrative weeds out the positive things? Or it's, well, yeah, so yes, say that again. that's the tendency that we have. It's um, we begin to pay attention to the things that hurt us. And so we have this. Um, I would say bias or it's a protective instinct that we need to pay attention to that, which is dangerous. And so we focus on the things that hurt us rather than the things that are pleasurable or are good. Uh And so, so if I'm going to suffer for, for poor quality of work, I'm going to always be judging my work and the things that I do really well, just won't have as much power because I got to stay attuned to the, the danger or to, I want to avoid the pain. So I focus on the negative because if I can eliminate the negative, I increase the likelihood that I'm at least not going to be, um, undone or I won't be, um, I won't be hurt. And so, so we tend to have a bias towards the negative stories and, uh, and we all know this, we can, we can, preach a sermon, we can, we can do good quality work and we can be affirmed by 20 people and we can have one person say, you <laughs> yeah. suck. Like that was just terrible. Yeah. And we're, and we're, it's sl- and we're slain. It's like, it, we feel this like seriously. And, and if depending on how important that person is in our life, um, even more so it's like, yeah. if it's a dad that says that to us 
or if it's a parent of, um, or an uncle or somebody that we really are a close friend or pastor or someone who we really look up to and they give us a critical word, right. That's that isn't within context or isn't, it'll keep you up at night. It'll keep you up at night and it, and it will, and it will settle down in deep, uh, and it will begin to create this event. This event begins to create the story. It's like we interpret the event and it begins to form the story. And that then will lead to emotional and behavioral responses that come from that, that kind of process. Okay. And, and so what we want to be able to do in life is narrate our story um, accurately and honestly and holistically that that we we need to take critical feedback we like if i do something and it's not good quality i need to know that but it just needs to be situated within this space that that's not that i'm more there's more to me than just the quality of this one job or there's more to me than this one mistake there's more to me than slipping and falling when i'm going for the gold like, like that's not a character failure. It's like I slipped. I, I, my sure we're, we're human and, and we make mistakes. And particularly if we're at the top of the game at the uh, competing in the Olympics, where you have multitudes of people who have been honing their skill with such precision yeah. that to miss something by a millisecond costs you, makes you a failure. It's like, well, that's a, that's a harsh standard. Like, yeah. That, that and so we want to we want to think about how do we how do we narrate our lives in such a way um, where where we are incorporating God's perspective into our lives uh, as well as um, as well as oftentimes the perspective of other people. Yeah. Because if I give you a critical word and you and I and it's not situated well, I'm sure I've done it to my children where I said something that they that hurt them but was not at all in line with the sentiment that I had towards them. Sure. But they likely will overinterpret that process and let, and that has the potential of cementing um, a life narrative. Yeah, that's good. Um, and maybe we could talk for, for a minute because I think when I'm hearing you talk about this, so much of what you're saying is like um, identity is actually found outside of yourself or it's given um i feel often you'll hear people talk about identity as just something you can create yourself like that it's found from within um but all of the examples we've just said i feel like are are so universal in the sense that no matter who i think i am it only takes a couple words from someone else to radically dismantle whatever I, whoever I think I am. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I have a deep conviction and it certainly probably is not one of the more popular ways of thinking about identity in our current culture. Sure. Um, I actually don't believe that we can create our own identity. I think that's a, that's a false premise and, um, identity is something that's given to us and, and people, are constantly looking for sources of identity and how are they going to understand who they are? 
And if they came from within, we wouldn't be wrestling with that question so deeply because we would answer the question yeah, and it would be answered and it would be easy and everyone would be, yeah, it wouldn't be right. And again, for me, it goes back to the creation narrative is that God has the capacity to self-identify and to, to say who he is. And, and we can see through scriptures at different points of the way, I am the Lord. That is my name. I won't give my glory to another. And who of us can say that? Like, <laughs> yeah. I am Tim and that is my name. And I won't, and, and, and nothing Even about your name was given to you. <laughs> exactly. That's what it's like. That is, that's precisely my point is like everything about our sense of identity is given to us. It's uh, starting with our name. Like it's our culture. It's like our, our family of origin. It's like our sense of who we are. Even our DNA, yeah, was uh, given like, to you by two people. <laughs> it's given to you by two people, and so, so at a, at a biological um, level, our identity is something that's given to us. Psychologically, um, things are given to us. Like we know the impact of neglect and abuse on children, and how that impacts the identity of a person. It's like, like this is this is these are gifts i mean they're sometimes very perverse gifts same with same with healthy secure healthy environments it's like man children can thrive in that space and they can be creative and they can go out and explore and learn and and it might look like they're creating their own identity but it's like no at the very at the very base identity is a gift and it's and it's given by by someone else and so the, the thing that we do have power in as it relates to identity is that we get to choose who we listen to. And particularly as we grow and mature and develop, we are moving towards an increasing sense of, of being able to choose the voices that we listen to. Mm-hmm. And and so as we do that, many people think of that process as like choosing your own identity. And it's yeah. like, no. New year, new you, reinvent right. yourself. Right. Yeah. And so you're still ultimately you're, you're listening to something to tell you who you are. Now, for some people that like we can think in terms of sexual identity. Mm-hmm. So in the it's um, or gender identity, it's like all of these things we can we can listen to biological processes we can listen to our attractions we can have we can have all of these things telling us and giving us input mm-hmm. into how we understand our sense of self and who we are but ultimately it's not like we just get to sit there and decide and say this is who i am and identity is so complex it's like there isn't one variable that's that says this is your identity and so like for michael on right. ski slopes it's like okay her identity as a skier may have taken a huge hit or as a gold medal Olympian. It's like, if that was her projected, this is, this is what, this is who I am. And now I haven't lived up to my identity. Well, that part of her identity might be really crushed and, and really suffered. Uh, but that's not all of her. Right. And, right. and I hope that she can incorporate that story into her life and say, there's a whole lot more to me than being a skier. And I hope that that there's a sense of hyperbole or deep emotion in this sense that everything over the past 15 years has to be re 
negotiated. It's like right. perhaps everything related to skiing over the last 15 years, I'm going to be rethinking. I'm going to be like, like that's a, a very appropriate and normal emotive response. I hope that that doesn't settle into some deep sense of, of absolute failure or absolute sense of, right. of identity, but that's a risk. Like when we invest ourselves heavily and we're disappointed, um, that yeah. can, that can really hurt. Yeah. So let me tell you a bit of a story and this might prompt, um, some more reflections and you may have some stories similar. So when I began to really think about my own sense of identity and understanding, um, who I am, and I began to puzzle through, um, a model of how do I come to understand my internal, my internal world. When I was, um, well, let me just say it this way. One of my core and deep narratives is this deep sense that people don't like me <laughs> and would prefer if I just shut up and stay quiet. Like just, we don't want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Yeah. And there, there is a, there are a set of stories in my life that I would say have threaded this negative, unhealthy and untrue, demonstratively untrue narrative. Um, in fact, what's, what is astounding to me is that this narrative still has some power in my life, despite hmm. all the evidence to the contrary. I have a whole career <laughs> built on listening to people and people hiring me to, to hear your to, insights, to work with yeah, me and to right. talk with me and to communicate with me. Uh, I've been asked to speak and teach in multiple places and have been affirmed by many, many people about the quality of what I have to say. In fact, you and saying, Hey Tim, how about we do this podcast together? Right. It's like, okay, seriously? Like, <laughs> like this narrative I have is like, people aren't going to be interested in what I have to say. So how did this narrative form? How'd you, how'd you get to have this narrative? When I was in grade school, um, I had a music teacher who absolutely humiliated me. Uh, we would, we would be singing and we were, we were sitting in desks and rows and in music class and we would be singing and he would walk up and down the aisles listening for kids that sing out of key off key. <laughs> Woof. And as I'm, as I'm sitting there, there were a handful of us that were regularly visited by this music teacher in his rounds. And he would stop by my desk and he would take his hand and indicate, do I need to go up and pitch or down and pitch to get in key? And you make those adjustments. And then when he, okay, good. Now you're in key and he moves on. Uh, and sometimes if it was severe enough, he would stop the whole class and make you sing by yourself. Oh, absolutely devastating for a sixth grader, seventh grader. It's like, yeah. it's like all the girls are sitting around you that you want to impress uh, all the, all the pressures of, of peers, um, of questioning. I mean, you're in the middle of puberty, so your voice is changing. Your it's all of these factors are at work and developmentally young children, you know, not young adolescents are in the stage of, of development where they're working to form an identity of question yeah. of, can I know where I fit within? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm absolutely humiliated. We get to the, towards the end of the school year when we're going to be doing a performance for 
families to come in and listen. And he calls a small group of us uh, and together that um, struggled musically and said, how about you guys just lip sync so that you don't mess up the program? Ooh, dang. And I remember making an internal commitment. No one will ever hear me sing. I just simply, I will keep my mouth shut. And in that moment, this narrative began to take on form. And there may have likely have been examples and things in my life that I'm not dialed into previous to that, that set the ground for, Hmm. uh, for that there likely was, uh, but that was a traumatic and culminating kind of a narrative got established. And I carried that narrative forward. And what, what's devastating is when we have these narratives, we actually begin to live into them. Hmm. And, and so, so a narrative creates an emotion. So events in our lives don't cause us to feel what we feel. Like there's not a cause and effect. Um, an event can happen in life, something negative, something positive, And that event does not make us feel what we feel. Rather, it goes through our narrative structure. It okay. goes, it's like the event happens and now I interpret the event and the, my interpretation of the event is what causes my feeling, not the event itself. Now, there may be some, some examples where that moves so fast, it's as though it's the cause and effect, especially, huh. bi- especially biological reflexes of like, if something jumps out of the corner in the dark and scares you and you... It's like you're not, there's not much of an interpretive process. That's a, a uh, there might be some, but sure. I would say for most, for the most, most practically, we can think in terms of the events do not cause us to feel. And whenever you hear someone say, you made me feel, they're lying. <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's not true. I didn't make you feel that. Now I created the, the context in which you can create interpretations for that feeling to emerge. And I have responsibility for how I interact with you, but I don't have the power to just reach into your switches yeah. and create a feeling. <laughs> and so, so we benefit when we evaluate our narratives as it relates to our emotional responses. And so our narratives, whatever they are, create emotional response and the narrative is your interpretation it's like your that, interpretation that's what what uh okay and, and it's a story it's like it's like something happens and it activates a a story and this is why you see patterns in people's lives it's like you can and you can become this you can start to see you able to predict it's like if this happens this will be the response and so so in that sense, we can start to think like, well, you made me feel that it's like, especially if we, especially in marriage, we often know other people, our spouses buttons. And, and in our most malicious times, we push those buttons on purpose. Cause if we can dysregulate our spouse before we're dysregulated, we win. So there's this internal <laughs> conflict. So we, so there's a sense of, we, it almost looks like we're causing people to feel, but it's always going through that narrative structure. It's the story is in the way we interpret it. And the patterns of our life inform how we feel and the emotions that we have. And so, um, and what's dastardly is that the narratives that we begin to form actually become our, our experiences. So we have the emotions and from the emotion, we have behaviors 
that emerge directly from our emotional processes. And so our behaviors are connected to the story we're telling and the emotion we're feeling. And then we act in a certain way in relation to that, to that process. And oftentimes that's a negative kind of behavior. And that negative behavior is like becomes that feedback loop. And so our behaviors create a new event. It's like the outcomes and the, the outcomes of our behavior or the responses of our behavior becomes a new event that has to be interpreted. And so if I believe that people don't like me and want me to shut up, I will likely feel sad. I will likely feel inadequate and insignificant. And my behaviors that come from those emotions will set up the dynamic where people probably won't be interested in what I have to say because I might be resentful and bitter. I may, I may respond to people in ways that aren't healthy. My, my actions will begin to create the very thing that I fear. It will, I, I'm afraid you're going to reject me. And so I hmm. act in ways in which it, I'm likely to be rejected because I'm, I'm bitter and resentful and I'm scared and I'm in, I, feel, I, I fear other people. And so I withdraw from people. Well, and people are like, well, who wants to hang out with the person that's just always withdrawing or always is critical? Yeah. And so now, now the life narrative starts to become true. Yeah. It's like it's, it's built on a lie, but then we live out the lie long enough and it's like the lie morphs itself into what looks like something true. Wow. Yeah. And the un fortunate reality is that within that space we start to answer the question of who am i yeah. it's like uh, it's yeah. like we build this narrative structure of identity becomes um a deep answer to this question of who am i i i'm the kind of person that people would rather shuts up and yeah. doesn't doesn't yeah. doesn't put themselves out there yeah and now now i have now I have begun to establish a deep sense of identity. I, I, I began to interpret myself and, um, and it's like, I'm listening to all these voices and I'm interpreting all these voices and internally I'm becoming the very thing that I'm not. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like, uh, this is so good. But I'm trying to think of, well, what are the narratives that I have in my life? Like what, what are the things that, um, are built upon a lie, but I've reinforced it perpetually. And now it's just who I assume I am, mm -hmm. but it's like, that's not, doesn't necessarily have to be true. Well, one of the ways of, of discerning that or finding, um, an answer maybe is the right word or to gain self-awareness in that space is that when something distressing is occurring, how do I tend to, how do I tend to think about it? How do I tend to narrate it? How do I tend to, um, talk about it? Uh, and so we can begin within distressing stories to start taking a look at what's the, what's the storyline. We can also take a look at it when really positive things happen. Sure. It, it's like, what is that? What does that mean about me? So what, it, what does it mean that if things go really, really well in life, I'm really happy and satisfied with myself. And if they don't, I beat myself up. Well, 
when really good things are happening, we can begin to say, oh, here's how these narratives formed. You know what? I, I was always affirmed when I scored the goal. And so the four-year-old kicking the soccer ball, he kicks the goal and the crowd goes wild and the parents are cheering and holding him up and they stop out for ice cream and, and there he's celebrated. But if he doesn't kick the goal or he misses the goal, he sees his dad throw his hands up in the air and screams at him and tells sure. him to work harder and run faster and, and kick harder. And, and, and now we're driving home in a glum mood because you missed the, you missed the goal. Yeah. And so those, we can begin to start understanding, oh, these are, these are the ways this framework began to develop internally. Uh, and I want to renegotiate, um, my narratives. I, I want, I, I make the assumption that we all have, have broken narratives that need to be, that need to be corrected or need to be re-examined. And from a, from, from my faith perspective, we want, we want to align our narratives with the perspectives of God. And, and that will be part two of our conversation today of, of how do we, how do we begin to think and understand this, what I call narrative loop of events and of narratives and emotion and behaviors and how they all reinforce each other. It's like, what's the way out of that? And, yeah. and in many regards, um, faith, my, my faith gives me a, a very clear um, way out of that trap. Um, that's good. Do you want, do you want to talk about the narrative loop at all right now? Or do you want to, uh, wait till our next conversation? Well, or well this is kind of what you have been starting. I, to talk I, it's, about. it's, I would say we've been, I've been talking through it, but I just haven't called it the narrative loop, but I would, my, the term that I used is, is, um, is the narrative loop and, and we'll put in the show notes, um, a PDF of, of this, of the process so that our listeners can, can see it because it can be a little hard to draw the picture just from, just from the audio. Um, but we can think in terms of, of let's start, think about a circle, um, with, um, and we're going to move through this cycle around this circle. And so if we think about a clock and so if we start at nine o'clock at that point in a circle, and we can think that right there is where events happen in our life. Okay. Um, and the event, um, the event can be anything. The event, the events are something that are outside of us. We have no control over them. They, they come and they happen circumstances, no control. We're not responsible for them. It's the things that happen in our life. And if we move up to the top of the circle, up to so like for the, example, in your story, it would be your interaction with your music teacher. Exactly. That, that's, that's, the event. that's the event. And so we move up to the 12 o'clock spot on the circle and we can think about up there is life narrative at the top of the circle. It's like, here is, um, here's the story that begins to form for me. People don't like me. They would rather I shut up. It's best for me to keep my mouth shut. Whatever I say is going to mess things up. That, that becomes, this is that interpretive, like that interpretation you're making of the event. Exactly. Exactly. And so that life narrative then is responsible for what elicits our emotional responses. Okay. Uh, and so within emotion, we, I sometimes think about it as the affective center or it's like, 
the place of affect, a feeling of, of emotion, of, of a depth of, of, um, it's energy, it's power. It's like this raw, hmm. the hmm. guts of things. And so, so in that, my resentments, my fears, my, my anger, my sadness, my anxiety, all of these things, um, as well as positive emotions of joy and power and, um, and, and purpose and like all of this deep, um, feeling come from this narrative space, uh, from that comes behavior and what, what behavior. And so, so I should say the affective sentence would be at three o'clock. Um, and then at, at six o'clock we have our behaviors and behaviors emerge from our emotional space and are often behaviors that we do perceive like for purposefully to change what we feel like, and, and that's where addiction often gets in into our lives. It's like, it's like if our emotional worlds are distressed and are not healthy, addiction introduces itself in our behavior, in the behavioral space as a way to actively change the emotion without addressing the narratives. Hmm. So it's like we work backwards. We're trying to, we're trying to manhandle the emotional space and just arm wrestle what we're feeling. And man, nothing like, nothing quite like heroin, nothing quite like um, pornography, nothing quite like pick the addictive substance or addictive sure. behavior and oatmeal cream pies. It's like yeah. nothing will, will change our emotions faster than addictive processes. And so... So but, behaviorally but doing that only just addressing the motion rather than the life narrative, it would be similar to, um, you know, if you have a, a disease, it, it's like an aspirin versus actually getting in and figuring out the cause. Exactly. Like, yes. like it might take care of some symptoms, but it doesn't actually take care of the disease or the problem precisely okay yeah precisely and and so the so what the behaviors do and any kind of addictive responses do is it leaves the the narrative structures unchanged it's like mm-hmm. uh, it's like those were those don't ever get addressed and so and this is the that dastardly process of from our behaviors our behaviors have an effect and so we're back up to the nine o'clock spot of events in life and circumstances in life, our, our behaviors lead back up to that circle and it becomes our behaviors because there's an effect from it. And the effect is a new, is a new event. It's like, and so the effect of our behaviors will almost always reinforce the narrative. And that's the concept that we talk about of self-fulfilling prophecy, or it's this, it's this sense that we're back up to the, we're back at this spot where the, the lies that I believe, the narratives that I have are just reinforced and it's where shame gets introduced. It's where it's like, we, we get this deep sense of like, I am a flawed human being. Something is wrong with me. Like, like here I am engaging in all of these processes that are bringing me right back. And, and it's like, the things that I fear are becoming true. And, and the longer I live in it, the more true it seems like they become. And is there any way out of that? And Paul talks about this in the scriptures. Um, when he says that, um, 
and Isaiah talks about it when he says that, woe, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. Like, it's like, I'm like, there's just something in this mix. It just simply, I'm stuck. And Paul, when he's reflecting on it in Romans, he's like, the things I don't want to do, I'm doing the things I want to do. I'm not able to do. And, and what's becoming, is there any way to be rescued from this cycle of, of death and destruction and of, of, of like, sick identity structures that pull us down and destroy us. And, and as that cycle continues to spin, it can get increasingly chaotic. Um, and no matter how healthy we are, we all have those areas of growth and those areas of narratives for us to consider. And so again, it leads back to this, who am I? Like, how do I make sense? Is there any way out? And the good news is, yeah, there really is. There's a, there's a way out of that kind of trap. And, and we'll save that, that for our part two of, of this conversation. But, but there are events that have happened in life. There are, there is gifts of identity that are given to us that, that strengthen us and that, that, that call out of us that creative intent of God of you are a good man. I am a good man. We, we have been created good and we can lean into and we can live into the goodness of God that he created and put in us. And, and there is a way out of, of this kind of process. Great. Great. Um, yeah, for this, I don't know, introduction conversation, any other thoughts you have or want to share? Um, so next, next conversation, we'll talk about, you know, how do you break out of this cycle I feel like one of the big things here in this initial conversation is the importance of starting to pay attention to what are the narratives like that being pretty crucial to who you are, like to your formed sense of identity is out of this narrative that you begin to believe about yourself based upon the things that are happening or have happened in your life. Um, So I feel like a big practical question is starting to pay attention to what are the narratives I believe like how do I respond to particular situations Um, I feel like obviously if you don't understand what the narrative is you're just going to be stuck in it Um, but yeah I don't know do you have any other thoughts you want to share for this conversation before we before we move on to our next one I don't think so I think what I want to do is encourage our listeners to uh, to lean into that space of, of how do we, um, how do we understand, um, and who we are, like what, what is, what are the ways in which we work to answer that question? And, and as we reflect on that, that sets up, uh, a sense of, is there, are there ways for us to heal for us to, to correct the narratives that, that hurt us and hurt the people we love? Great. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tim. All right. Great conversation and um, look forward to next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Guideposts with Dr. Tim Stoffer. If you're finding this podcast beneficial, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. Also, make sure to check out the show notes where you can find links to resources as well as an email address. We want to hear from you. Send us your questions, feedback, and topic ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening.